Acts chapter 8, starting from verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is a passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was there like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with the very, that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is God's word. My name's Phil. I'm the associate vicar here. It's lovely to have you with us and it's fantastic to be back in Acts once more. Let's pray and then we'll get right into it. Father God, we pray for more than just that we would understand words written on a page. We pray that as we look at these words, we would hear ourselves being addressed by the Spirit of the living God. And we would hear ourselves being welcomed into relationship by the Holy One. Father, break down barriers of unbelief in us and help us to know that this invitation is for each one of us. Help us to know too that this invitation is for everyone we meet each day. Lord God, grow in us confidence in your love. Grow in us courage to share it. And grow in us delight and joy as we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, when I worked in the city um, a long time ago, back when it was all just fields, really, um, back over there, um, there uh, I used to try to... Um, I wasn't very good at it, but I, I tried to invite colleagues to some of the lunchtime Bible talks that were around the corner from my office. I'm not sure if you've come across them if you work in London. They're scattered all across the city. They're a fantastic resource. Um, do ask somebody if you've never come across them. Uh, just a short evangelistic Bible talk once a week designed for you to be able to bring colleagues who, uh, who are not yet Christians to hear, hear the gospel. A brilliant, brilliant thing. And uh, I remember there was one particular colleague I invited a number of times called Angus. He was, uh, he was a top, top bloke. Really, really good fun. Uh, no idea what he was doing as a city lawyer. Um, he was, um, he was like, it was around the world yachtsman. He was adventurous. It was, I think they got him just for the brochure because he was, he was far too, um, he had far too much life to be a lawyer. But, um, we love having lawyers here. You're very welcome amongst us. Uh, <laughs> I'm a recovering lawyer myself. Um, the, uh, and don't miss out Jess's meeting. It's a really good chance to get encouraged afterwards. <laughs> Hi, Jess. Um, where were we? Angus. Anyway, he, uh, the first time I invited him, he kind of made excuses. Yeah. 
bit too much on. The second time I invited him, more excuses. And the third time we were, um, we were out, um, we'd um, been off climbing and um, went for a drink afterwards. And I invited him again. He said, look, I don't think you realize, Phil, I have lived such a debauched life. If I even set foot in church, my skin would start burning. Now, he never came along, but then he never particularly wanted to. The sad truth, though, is that there will always be others who would love to come to know God, who would love to, to, to connect with their creator, but who feel they can't, who feel that they're too unclean, unworthy, that there are things either about them or about their past that mean they could never be welcomed by God, that he could never love them. Now, this matters. This matters to everyone here. It matters to us as we seek to share the good news of Jesus with people outside of this building. Now, do you really believe the gospel works for people with messy, complicated lives? Do you really believe the gospel works for those who seem hostile and entrenched in their opposition? Yeah. The atheist intellectual, the devout Muslim, the gay rights advocate. Or do we just subconsciously write some people off thinking they could never, they would never. So we never even share the gospel with them. And it matters too for us because I guess that for most people there will be times, and for some of us, great seasons, where we just doubt that God could really accept me that I could be clean in his sight, that he could love me. And so for us, Christianity is something that we find ourselves on the, on the border of. We're peering over the wall, a little bit afraid that we can't go in. Well, tonight, I want us to find confidence in our forgiveness, our welcome, and God's love. And the message really is, come and find that there is enough grace in Jesus Christ to wash any and everyone. And that applies to you, whoever you are. Now, we're, uh, we're following the explosive spread of the Jesus movement out of Jerusalem as it goes to the ends of the earth, as we, as we read with Luke, the historian, the account of the early church. And in chapter 6 to 11, Luke is explaining how it is that this early group of Jewish Christians came to understand that the message of Jesus Christ was truly a message for the whole world. And the way it happens, really, is that a whole heap of people who could never have come near under Judaism come into the kingdom of God. We saw last week with uh, the Samaritans in Samaria, and this week we'll see it with the Ethiopian eunuch. And the, the key question, really, that we, I want us to look at is this question that he asks in, in verse 37, what can stand in the way of my being baptized? What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Sorry, verse 36. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Now, baptism is, a, is the sacrament, the, the ritual that signifies entry into Christianity, joining the people of God. So uh, Colossians 3, uh, no need to turn to it, I'll read it for us. Colossians 3, verse, uh, sorry, Colossians 2, verse 11 to 12, puts it this way. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, 
in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. In other words, as he says in those verses, baptism signifies being united with Christ, and you see it depicted when we have baptisms here of adults, of uh, united and then go down into the water to symbolize joining Christ in his death and the washing off of sin, and then coming out of the water, united with Christ in his resurrection life. Wash clean of the sin and the selfishness, the lust and the anger and the bitterness. All the stuff that pollutes our souls is gone, and we have a new life in Christ. That's baptism. And this Ethiopian eunuch says, what can stop me being baptized? And the question really this passage addresses is, how does this man go from the answer being, mate, everything, just everything, to nothing? Let's do it. Now, uh, join with me, uh, verse 26, the strange ways of God. The last time we saw Philip, if you were here last week, he was in Samaria to the north of Jerusalem. I think we've got a map somewhere. Um, there we go. So he's um, in Samaria. You'll see the journey he's taken from Jerusalem up there. And there's been, I guess, what Christians call a revival. As he speaks about Jesus, just scores and scores, hundreds of people have responded and put their trust in Jesus and been released from captivity to evil and sin. And there's been just an outpouring of joy and delight as suddenly the gospel is not just for Jews. It's for Samaritans as well. And given that, what happens next is pretty odd. If you look at Acts 8, verse 26, Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So if you go back to the map, you'll see um, he, he heads away from Samaria and goes all the way down to the road at the edge of the desert over on the coast by Gaza. God says, Look, Go away from the area where loads of people are becoming Christians and responding to the gospel and go instead to a road in the desert. What? Well, that's an odd thing to do. Of course, God has a plan. And as Philip trudges along, he is confronted by a remarkable sight that soon turns into a remarkable sound. And he sees the conversion of a remarkably unlikely man. So firstly, let's look at this man who was cut off from God. Verse 27. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandaki, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home he was sitting in his chariot reading. So you can imagine that Philip's down by this road, and there's a faint cloud of dust on the horizon that gradually grows and starts to approach him at probably around jogging speed. And as it does, eventually from the cloud of, of dust, a splendid chariot appears. I imagine there'd have been a driver, there's probably bodyguards given who's in it, riding on camels next to it, and, and seated in the chariot in splendid robes is a magnificent official. Now, he is in charge, we're told, of the treasury of the Queen of Ethiopia. So this is the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And he's from, well, it's the area, it's, it's both Ethiopia and Sudan is the area that it's talking about. So he's a black African, would have looked completely different to Philip. And we're also told he's a eunuch. In other words, he's been castrated. Now, this was often a requirement back then for those who worked in the royal households, just to avoid the danger of any rival bloodline developing. 
They just said, let's just not even let that happen. And um, uh, HR policies were a little bit less um, <laughs> gentle those days, and so there we go. Um, now, the remarkable sight of this chariot is matched by the remarkable sound coming from it. People usually read out loud in those days. But Philip realizes he recognizes the reading. It's, it, it's um, Isaiah, the Old Testament, the prophet. So what's happened? This man, who was not born Jewish, has come to worship the God of the Bible. And he's traveled all the way to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. Now, I doubt we realize what that means. But back then, this is a thousand-mile round trip. We're talking a month or two on the road, at risk of bandits, all the diseases that you can pick up in a, in a country that's different from your own, uh, not to mention the fact that when you're a senior official and you're away for a month or two months, there'll be others trying to take your place every moment you're away. And it's not like you can you know, log in remotely to keep up with your emails. He's taking an enormous risk. I think this is a level of devotion, as I thought about it, we just we struggle to comprehend. I mean, let's be honest, attendance at midweek Bible studies drops if it's raining hard or the Champions League knockout match. And yet, this guy is willing to travel a thousand miles on dirt roads in a chariot just to get to a temple. But here's the thing. Here's the real kicker. When he gets there, he can't come in. He has to stay. You see a picture of the temple, this vast ornate temple, and you'll see there's a low fence running down. He has to stay on the outside of that. He can't, you know, forget going into the holiest of holies. He can't even come into the main temple courts. Why? Well, because he's a eunuch, and God's law states this in Deuteronomy 23. Verse 1, no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of God. It's a bit harsh. Well, in the Old Testament law, God helps his people understand his holiness by giving them lots of pictures. And physical imperfection was given to them as a picture of spiritual imperfection. It's to help them understand the need for spiritual holiness. So in spite of being willing to sacrifice his career, his health, even his life, he cannot come near because he has been sexually mutilated. And so he finds himself peering through the fence, excluded from the God he longs to come near to. Verse 29. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, I'm guessing for both Philip and the, the occupants of the chariot, this is, must have been a slightly strange thing. This, this is not a, in the days when long-distance running was a regular leisure activity. And you've got the equivalent of a, a man running along the hard shoulder of the M1 uh, trying to have a conversation through, well, I mean, it, they weren't going quite as fast as the traffic on the M1, um, but on the equivalent of a main road, uh, running alongside, having a conversation with the guy in the chariot. It's just, what is going on? But then, thankfully, eventually, I mean, who knows how fit Philip was, but thankfully, before he conks out, he's invited into the chariot and sits down in a sweaty heap, and he starts to explain what's going on. 
Now, do you notice that hope starts with humility here? This is a guy that the whole of the Ethiopian empire, the whole of Ethiopia and Sudan, they look to him to run the economy. He is a man with wisdom and knowledge and power. And he says, I just don't know. Can you help me? And he asks a strange, sweaty man running along the road and submits to him. Humility is always the first step in understanding. And I think Luke actually underlines this man's humility because you'll notice every time he quotes the eunuch's speech, he's asking a question. Let me tell you, those who humbly seek God will always find him. Secondly, the man who was cut off from God so we could draw near. So Philip climbs up into the chariot and he then begins to explain what is going on. Verse 32, this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Guessing Philip was quite glad that the eunuch hadn't been reading the early chapters of Leviticus. It's, like, it's a whole lot easier from Isaiah 53. Um, but it's extraordinary what happens here. Actually, the, the eunuch's reading the section that Ben read from after our confession. The section runs from Isaiah 52:13 to 53:12. But he just he can't understand what's going on. Now, notice a couple of key things, uh, just for a moment. We'll just step aside for a moment. The fact that he can't understand it doesn't mean it can't be understood. It has no meaning. Nor does it mean, the fact that he can't understand it, it doesn't mean he'll never be able to understand anything unless there's a teacher to tell him what it means. Otherwise, he'd be stuffed as he rides off in his chariot. He'd never understand another word. The point is, we need help, especially when we're getting started out. We need help to get our bearings around the Bible, and in particular with the Old Testament, to learn, as Philip points out in verse 35, that actually it all points to Jesus. He is who this is talking about in Isaiah 53. He is the servant of God. Uh, this is the uh, Rosetta Stone. You can uh, see this incredible artifact from the ancient world in the British Museum. And Jen Z is around you rather than seeing it. You can make a TikTok video of yourself looking at it, as uh, seems to be the habit these days. If you ever go there, no one's actually looking at it. They're just messing around with their phones. Um, but anyway, enough of my intergenerational um, prejudice. Now, until the, um, until the Rosetta Stone was, under, uh, was discovered, no one could understand hieroglyphics. They're the Egyptian um, pictures that they knew were writing, but no one could understand what they meant. But then in, um, in 1799, um, Napoleon's soldiers discovered this stone in the sands of Egypt, and we nicked it when we defeated the French, which is a lot easier than finding it yourself. Um, so um, we have it in the British Museum. Well done us. <laughs> uh, and uh, what is amazing about this is, uh, you probably can't make it out, but it's got hieroglyphics at the top, and then the same text, but written in demotic script um, below, and then in the bottom in ancient Greek. And suddenly, people had the key. And you could understand hieroglyphics anywhere 
once you've got this key that tells you how to translate them. Why do I say that? Well, Jesus is the Rosetta Stone of the Old Testament. When you understand the whole Old Testament points to Jesus, oh, everything makes sense. We saw this about the temple in Acts 7. Jesus is the true temple. We won't go into detail on this, but his life is the ultimate meaning of the Old Testament. His life, death, and resurrection is, is where it all points. And so as, as, he, as the eunuch tries to work out what's going on in Isaiah 53, who is the, he talking about, himself or someone else, the servant of the Lord? Philip's able to say, well, all the Old Testament points to Jesus. He is this servant who dies. And once you get that, then you can start to understand it. And he'll be able to make sense of the rest of Isaiah having had this explained to him. Okay, so um, back into the main line of this, uh, of what's going on here. So who is this, uh, this servant and what is this good news about him, as verse 35 puts it, the good news about Jesus? Well, in this section written by Isaiah in around 700 BC, Isaiah is explaining how is it that God's sinful, foolish, wicked people who've rejected him can be restored to relationship with him and be forgiven. Having been cast off in exile, in exile, how can they be brought near to God again? And the answer comes through this figure called the servant of God. And we're told, we learn, that God's people can be forgiven because this man will be cast off, cut off, destroyed in their place. He will be taken from the earth so that they can be welcomed into heaven. Now, Luke uh, only quotes a couple of verses, but presumably Philip explained the whole section. The very heart of the section, the verses that we read um, just after the confession, Isaiah 53, you've got them on your sheets. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the heart of the Christian message, predicted 700 years before Christ by Isaiah. That one would come who would bear upon himself the sins of humanity and take the full punishment so that sinful humanity could come to God clean and forgiven and welcome. I've been rude to the French, so let me uh, redress the balance. Um, a couple of years ago, there was a, um, there was a terrible terrorist incident in Treves in France. A supermarket um, uh, terrorist uh, went on a bit of a rampage, and he ended up in a supermarket with a single female hostage. Um, and the, uh, the French police cordoned off the area. The, the specialist uh, anti-terrorist police came in, commanded by a guy called Lieutenant Colonel Arnaud Beltram. And the negotiation wasn't going to go anywhere. And he was increasingly worried about this single female hostage. And so he took off his weapons and his body armor. And he went into the supermarket and exchanged himself for her so that the negotiations could take place without a civilian with a gun to her head. In the end, the, the jihadi decided to kill her anyway, uh, kill him anyway. And so he died, but she lived. Now, it's not exactly the same as what happens in Isaiah 53. God is not a deranged jihadi. 
And the danger we face is, well, it's a death we justly deserve for our rejection of God. But it does show the swap. Just as Colonel Beltram stepped out of safety and exchanged himself so that someone would live even though he would die. So Jesus stepped out of the safety of heaven. God the Son became a human being and willingly went and died on the cross so that you and I could be welcomed by God into his heavenly family. Now, I'm not sure if Philip took the eunuch on to Isaiah 56 or just let him discover that for himself on the long journey home. But for him, for the Ethiopian eunuch, it is Isaiah 56 which shows exactly what Jesus achieved on the cross. I think we've got the verses on the screen, Isaiah 56. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain I'm only a dry tree, for this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. See, the death of Jesus on the cross means that even a man like this, utterly excluded under the law, could be welcomed fully into the people of God. No longer left on the outside, peering over the temple fence, he is whole, he is restored, and he is welcome. The Ethiopian eunuch, he is a sexually damaged gender minority. And he is brought into the heart of God's people and told, you will be as fruitful, more fruitful than a family with their children through the work that Jesus has done to bring you close. Jesus was cut off so anyone could draw near God. I love verse 36, which is where this passage starts to conclude. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, um, sorry, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? He made a thousand mile pilgrimage, no, no doubt offered costly offerings at the temple, but was still unable to approach God. So what has changed between him going to the temple in Jerusalem and this moment as they pass this pool of water before the desert? What has he done that means now he can go through the ritual of being accepted into the people of God? Well, he hasn't done anything. What he's done is listen, as Philip explains what Jesus has done to bring him close. And so he's baptized. He gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea, and we'll meet him again much later in Acts. But how wonderful. He went on his way rejoicing. The sound of reading has become the sound of singing. And every mile now that he travels from Jerusalem, it's not a mile further from the God he couldn't approach at the temple. 
every mile he travels, God is with him. Because as a man who trusts in Jesus, his sins have been forgiven. And God is not just now near him, but by his spirit, God dwells in him. No wonder he's rejoicing. Now, I hope you can see this cannot be a story about the power of faith. If you believe enough, well, you can come near to God. Otherwise, his journey of devotion would have been what earned his way into the kingdom of God. This is not a story about the power of faith, but about the power of Jesus, who has done everything to bring us to God. How Jesus heals us. How Jesus makes us whole. How Jesus takes those who are far off and welcomes them into his family. Look, as we close, if we've understood what the Holy Spirit's saying in Acts 8, we'll do two things. First, we'll approach God through Jesus with confidence. Wherever we are and whatever we've done, we'll approach, as Hebrews 10 puts it, the throne of grace with confidence. And secondly, we'll offer the love of God in Jesus to everyone. We'll never write off anyone as too far off and unlikely. Um, I watched a, a wonderful interview and talk last week with an Australian man who probably fits that, car- um, that category of too far off, as well as anyone in our culture. Not because he's Australian. <laughs> that doesn't um, exclude you from the people of God, um, I promise. Uh, the, um, but in his own words, David Bennett, in his own words, he was an atheist, anti-Christian, gay rights activist. As a, as a young man and a zealous um, Christian-hating gay rights activist, his mum became a Christian and he confronted her and said, you have to choose between your gay son who is real and the delusion in your head. He was a man who was far off from God. It's interesting, as he looks back, he says, my hatred of Christianity came from a deep belief God hated me. He said, I thought that Christianity condemned me and there was no way in for me. But then in March 2009, he met um, a Christian at a film festival who didn't write him off. And she shared the gospel with him in a pub in the gay district of Sydney. And he encountered the radical love of Jesus Christ. He said, I found a God who didn't answer all my questions, but came down from his throne and washed my feet and loved me and said, I make you righteous by faith. It's extraordinary as he talks about how that that radical welcome of God led to a radical holiness in his life as he turned away from sin. And he talks about uh, living a rich life as a celibate Christian man. And you watch the interviews, he just radiates joy. Now, let me be very, very, very clear. He was no further away from God when he rejected Jesus than any of the rest of us. But he felt he was in a category of people for whom God has no love and for whom there's no hope of acceptance and inclusion. So the point with him is not he's further away than any of the rest of us. It's no matter how far you feel you are from God, you're wrong. God loves you. He wants you. If God can bring him into his forgiveness and wholeness and love, there is no one here who can say, uh, look, yeah, I know, I know Christianity is a lovely thing, but I can't. It's not for me. I'm too far off. We mustn't allow our culturally warped ideas about God or our past experiences at the hand of other Christians to keep us trapped in the lie. God doesn't want people like you. Likewise, we mustn't allow the sin and the shame 
that we know to trap us in the lie. You're too filthy. You're way too stained. The stuff you've done, the person you've become, God doesn't want you. The death of Jesus can wash any stain. The death of Jesus was for every kind of human being. The death of Jesus was to bring close those who are far off, was to welcome the wanderers into the family of God. And so whoever you are and whatever you've done, the death of Jesus is enough for your forgiveness. And whoever you are and whatever you've done, God's radical love is waiting for you if you'll only receive Jesus. So that's the first thing. Approach God with confidence as you put your trust in Jesus. Secondly, when you have come to enjoy that forgiveness and wholeness and love, then share it with everyone. I think probably all of us, we've got categories of people in our heads that we unconsciously just write off. We don't even bother inviting them to carol services. We avoid mentioning that we go to church on Sundays because we think they would never want to come. They're just not the kind of person who would ever want to draw near to God. And Acts 8 tells us God doesn't have any categories of people like that in his mind. That he doesn't want to save or that he thinks are too far off. And neither should we. So go and share the invitation of Jesus broadly, radically, inclusively. God's love is for everyone, even for me and even for you. Let's pray. Our Father God, we, uh, we thank you for this wonderful story of this glorious conversion. Father, we thank you for that image of the, the chariot rolling away into the desert, the sound of singing and rejoicing coming from this man who thought he was excluded, who thought he was far off, who thought there was no way in, and who found in Jesus, anyone can be washed clean and everyone is welcome. Father, whoever we are tonight, I pray that we would know that. I pray that for some tonight, you would help us to believe that even I can come close to you through Christ. And we pray this for his glory and for our eternal salvation. Amen.